0: Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast, episode six. Ian, we continue in post-captain. What do we have in store this episode?
1: Well, this is the final section of the book for us. We've got resolution, we hope, for Jack and Stephen. We've got the culmination of action aboard the Polycrest with payoffs for Jack and payoffs for Stephen. We've got shoal waters for them to navigate and we've got unrest aboard the Polycrest for Jack to take care of. And we've got an opportunity for Sophie to take the lead on the romantic connection between her and Jack. So it's all to play for. Nice. Stephen and Jack have had to set sail aboard the Polycrest on this probably near-suicide mission that's been assigned to them by Admiral Hart. What's going on in Jack's head, do you think, as they set off?
0: Yeah. We've got them waiting for Dawn for their duel with each other. All of a sudden, they're called to action. They're on the ship. And Stephen and Jack, in the etiquette of the time, like a bride and groom, cannot see each other as potential dueling partners are not supposed to see and interact with each other before the duel. So they have to be on the ship, but not speak to each other, not interact with each other. But all of a sudden, you know, Stephen comes to Jack. You know, when Jack is in trouble, Stephen rises to the occasion, even when there is tension and tough times between them. So Stephen's come to Jack. Jack is trying to deal with all his problems aboard the Polycrest. And Jack hears Stephen out. Stephen brings some very important news to him. And and Jack just kind of dismisses him. Jack is very cold, very stiff with him. Um, it, and you've got Jack sitting here as soon as Stephen leaves it says when the door had closed behind Stephen he meaning Jack sat down with his head in his hands and let himself go to total unhappiness to something near despair so many things together and now this cold evil look he reproached himself most bitterly for not having seized this chance for an apology you know here is Jack saying oh my gosh you know, I was so stupid before I'm so stupid again. I've got everything here, and here is this good friend and and i you know i'm i'm not i'm I'm not reaching back out to him um and then actually kind of calls himself up short once again because he thinks, well, and then again, it might just look like now that I know that Stephen can shoot the head off the King of Hearts anytime he pleases yeah. that that maybe I'm just trying to get myself out of this dueling thing, but Jack knowing his wrong. Doesn't apologize, doesn't want to be seen backing down, and still is in a real pickle there above aboard his ship.
1: A pickle in the context of his relationship with his friend Stephen, and a pickle because this is a shot-rolling ship, right? There's mutiny brewing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's the news. You know, we've we've had so much from. From Patrick O'Brien earlier about how surgeons often are part of mutinies. They kind of have a foot in both worlds, the officer's world, the crew's world. Um, Stephen certainly has overheard all this stuff. He's not an informer, but he feels like Jack really needs to know that. And he just came in there, breached etiquette to interact with him, to tell Jack this. And Jack still, knowing that here Stephen is perhaps saving his life again, Uh, By notifying him of this mutiny, you know, doesn't apologize. But what is Jack going to do about this mutiny?
1: Well, this is a turning point. Well, I think it's a turning point for Jack because for most of the book so far, he's been stuck in in indecision indecision about his romantic relationships, indecision about what to do next with his career. But something switches inside him, and having had no insight at all into how he can manage himself and his personal relationships, he has this really piercing insight into, here's what I have to do to rescue my ship, to bring my crew back from the breach of mutiny and just possibly, just possibly rescue my career. Yeah. And he does some very careful preparation. He goes and talks to Smithers, the Marine Lieutenant, and asks him very coldly, very incisively, what do you know about the men in your command? What do you know about how loyal your Marines will be to command? Because I might ask them to point, you know point their guns at the crew shortly and he goes and talks to the purser and talks about navigation he's decided at this point that he's not going to wait for a day or two before he goes to Sholia. he's going to go straight there that very same day he's going to crack on across the channel to Sholia and complete this mission in the same day in the same tide and this time like he always says there really is truly not a moment to be lost
0: yeah so very true you know, this This is it for him. Um, he, he's liable to be a dead man in many different ways here, and he's got to do something.
1: He really has. And he's got to give a speech. Now, the person who tends to give speeches in these books so far seems to have been Stephen giving speeches to other people about points of view and philosophy and relationships. Jack doesn't very often get to give speeches, apart from maybe formal ones like being read in. But he has to put the crew on deck, He has to call the Marines to attention and he has to give this speech where all of a sudden he's in headlong momentum. He gets straight into saying he can't believe that they've had their heads turned by this mutinous talk. He gets straight into reminding them of how brave they've been in action only recently in the same ship. Gets straight into his plan of attack. He doesn't talk about himself or the king. He doesn't appeal to their loyalty. He just says... My ultimate promise to you is there's going to be no punishment. This will not be logged, but we're going to show that we're not a shy crew. We're going to go over to Shulia and show Bonaparte a thing or two. And it's one of those great speeches where I'm thinking, yeah, fantastic work. I'd be following this guy because he judged the tone of his speech and he has almost, almost turned the crew around. He's still got one more thing to do, as we're going to hear, to really cement the change sentiment um, among the crew. So he goes through this very tense ritual of picking a crew for the barge and and that crew he has to choose who's going to be in the in the barge crew, and how can he use the barge as it were as a vehicle to get some of these mutineers into a bit of a different situation
0: yeah and it's a it's a it's a tough Thinking about because he's, he's promised, you know, here, here's, I want to win your hearts and minds as I've got the cannons trained on you behind me and the, the Marines, you know, looking down their barrels at you. And he seems to have done that and he's promised no punishment, but walks down among the crew unarmed and starts calling out the name of the mutineers because he knows who's likely to be this. And they're all recognizing that they know that he knows and they're all being sent for some unknown reason off to get on this barge, and the tension is mounting.
1: And at any moment, members of the crew could disregard his order to go join the barge. At any moment, members of the crew could just say, you know, "Nuts to this! Let's let's scrag him." He could have been overwhelmed by by mutiny at that very moment. Right? They could simply have decided just to stand stand their ground and not not obey his orders. But he walked in amongst them. He was really challenging himself and them to say. Yeah, you know, have I got enough authority in this situation to at least bring something new out of it?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if some people reading Post Captain through here might scratch their heads a little bit and say, well, well, wait a minute. What what is this whole barge thing about? You know, we're on here, we've decided to go make this attack. Sounds like people are sort of with them, and all of a sudden we're reading off names of people to go on a barge. They're mostly mutineers. Um, all of a sudden, it includes some of his most loyal men. And the nice thing about going through the canon is that there are always other resources. There are other people who love this canon, who are right there to help you. And Ian, you you reached out to the gun room here.
1: That's right. So we, we reached out to the gun room because I was trying to remember how this struck me when I first read it many years ago because it's a little bit of an odd situation to say, put these people in the barge, towed behind a ship. And then later on, he's going to recover them back from the barge when the weather gets up. And I was trying to pick apart what was really going on here. Was it an accident or a spur of the moment thing that he said barge's crew were going to go into the barge? Or was it maybe part of a plan? And I think as you read the whole story and read a little bit beyond this moment, it does seem like it was part of a plan that Aubrey had to put this crew, as you say, Mike, some mutineers and also some trusted men of Aubrey's followers into the barge so that they were isolated albeit pretty uncomfortable, being towed behind a ship while everybody else goes to dinner and everybody else gets to talk in their messes without the mutineers around to kind of drip poison in their ears.
0: Yeah, all the sea lawyers are gone, as uh, O'Brien calls them. Aubrey and O'Brien have have just brilliantly engineered this thing so that, well, we know that they're not just going to cut the barge loose so they're not going to fire on us because he's got his loyal men in right. there and they're not going to foment even worse, dis you know, uh, plan B on the barge. And in the meantime, the people in the mess can kind of come together, you know, get their, you know, get their sea legs back under them, head into this battle, kind of rally back behind, uh, jack aubrey again and by the time the barge folks rejoin the crew it's past them and you know it, i love o'brien's lane, line here that he says you know the seamen for the most part had turned with their usual calm volatility from one disaster to the interval before the next
1: very cool calm volatility bit of an oxymoron
0: so the interval before the next disaster, what's the next disaster we have coming on top of them here?
1: Right. Well, the next disaster is the polycrest going into action at Cholieu, And we can tell, I think, that this is going to be the the climax in action terms of the story because everything is now at risk. There's, there's nothing that's not hanging by a thread at this point. The, the ship, the crew, the mission, the mutinous state of the ship's company, Stephen and Jack, their friendship, their romantic relationships, everything is now in play. There's one big gamble going here, which is that maybe they can pull something off with this raid on which Jack has decided to go into headlong. I think this is a really outstanding piece of action writing, better even than the action against Cacafuego in Master and Commander, for me, this is the closest that Patrick O'Brien comes to the sort of gritty action writing that C.S. Forrester was actually pretty good at or you mm. know, military fiction writers like Tom Clancy or Dean Kuntz. Patrick O'Brien, I think, knew that describing action in this kind of pulse-pounding way from the point of view of the hero, which is a bit of a flattering point of view, is a bit of an indulgence. He's not going to get to use this very often unless his novels are just going to turn into pot boilers. So he knows that he's going to have to use this first-person action point of view really sparingly, and he's going to pour every ounce of his skill as a writer into this action at Cholier, because it has such significance for Jack and for all of his friendships. So, of course, it wouldn't be an O'Brien action sequence without uh, an early setback, and we get this undercutting of the action as Polycrest loses her way in the fog bank and is grounded and the ship, and her designers have finally... Come good on the perceived threat that's been there all along, which is, you know, one day this ship is going to let you down right. and, and the ship is already breaking up and it's grounded on the sandbank.
0: Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's funny. We have got, you know, we're setting up for this incredible action scene, but O'Brien in his own way, you know, has had in an earlier conversation between the master and Stephen this whole setup about how complex the entrance is here. You know, there's two entrances, there's an inner and outer road. You know, we're going to have to hit this just right. And Jack has now fast forwarded their arrival by 24 hours to say, forget getting there tomorrow. We got to get there now. Here they are rushing in, boom, things are happening. And then boom, we're grounded. What could we possibly do to get out
1: of this? And O'Brien's got this really great, very, very well-researched, I think, perspective on what's it going to take to get a, a large-ish vessel off a sandbank when she's heavily aground. He's going to try the obvious things like try and bounce the ship off, try and heal the ship. Um, he knows that you can't just tow an anchor out in a boat, drop the anchor and heave in on the anchor because that's not going to cut it. We need a, we need another heavier vessel to tow off a ship that's as heavily aground as the Polycrest is, and there's this brief moment where Jack looks around the road, looks around the harbour, and he sees the fanchula, and he has this momentary flash of gambling reason, which says, well, maybe, just maybe, I can use fanchula to tow Polycrest off.
0: Yeah. Under fire this whole time, trying to free the Polycrest, they're going to take their you know smaller boats again under fire cut this vessel out right below the cannons, which can't quite point down enough there, and bring her back. Now, Jack, to do that, needs quite the crew, and he's got to look at these mutineers underneath all these cannons and say, who's willing to go with me?
1: Yeah. The people who, not much more than an hour ago, were on the brink of mutiny, he's, he's still not sure, I think, up to this point, just where they are and their willingness to follow him. So there's a really great moment coming here.
0: Yeah, and and you know, as and we we try to do this without spoilers, and you know, spoiler alert here. <laughs> yeah, this is I think where we see the the tide turn at least emotionally for Jack because he all of a sudden realizes that everybody is with him, and you know, we we know why they're with him because we're with him. We love Jack, yep. and the Polycrests yep. are with him, and here it is this almost suicide, suicide mission with inside the suicide mission to go try to cut
1: this thing out. Right. So they have crew members all piled into the boats and Jack has this great big surge of positive emotion as he realizes 70, 80 dozens of his men are following him. But getting the tow aboard from the Fanchula to the Polycrest is going to take a job of work. They've already had to incur casualties getting the Fanchula cut out. Both the Fanchula and the Polycrest are under fire, from the fort and the tow line is parted by a ball and jack and this is a moment i think where you might say that patrick o'brien is pushing the hero first person thing just (laughs) a tiny bit but i I think he's earned it jack himself has to dive in to swim backwards and forwards with the tow line and it's funny I, i was thinking if if the movie had been made of this scene with Jared Butler and not Russell Crowe I think that would be fitting for this you know solo diving into the water with the toe line between your teeth bit but uh, O'Brien's done a nice job of, of getting us here Jack has earned this heroic ability because we know that he's um, a strong swimmer and he's he's recovered men overboard in the past by diving in
0: he's he's a strong swimmer who already been you know knocked on the head is bleeding profusely before he jumps in to grab this line and bring it back over and he is he's really getting pounded uh pretty tough in this scene and 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 brings it home
1: and then almost without us noticing jack's back aboard the polycrest the tow line is made fast the polycrest swims there's this really vivid writing of the men's feet at the capstan slipping in blood as the yes. capstan finally, finally toils, and the pole clicks and Polycrest swims. But the Polycrest is sinking. And as they're towing away, we have one of these big moments in Jack's character arc where he moves into a new ship, except in this case, he's moving out of Polycrest into the Fanchula. The Polycrest sinks right next to them. <sighs> and Jack and the crew are on the way, but Jack's. Really, as you say, Mike, really heavily wounded.
0: Yeah, and he's bleeding out. And I think for some of us reading along here, there's still this unresolved thing between Jack and Stephen. And right here on the deck in the midst of this action, you hear, you know, behind Jack's ear, come, brother, said Stephen in his ear, very like a dream. Come below, you must come below. Here is too much blood altogether. And Bonden helps Stephen carry Jack below.
1: We're going to take a break for a few moments right now. We'll be right back with you shortly, just after this. If you're enjoying the podcast... Please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lubbershole. Hole. Welcome back. You're with Ian and Mike, and you're listening to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. And it's a it's a in a masterly way, it's a really, really subtle resolution of the whole disagreement between them. Jack's redeemed himself by sacrificing himself almost to the point of death. Stephen permits that redemption by saying, I'm going to take care of this guy now. Yes. And I think I, I knew as I read the sentences that, yeah, okay, they're fine now. And we're going to turn the page and we're, we're we're in after action. And the two are back in the world of friendship and familiarity and joking along with each other. But it's a very, very subtle moment. There's no great kind of swelling of trumpets moment where the two are reconciled but they both just decide that that's the role that they're going to play now is friends to each other
0: yeah and there's you know I, I don't know the music like you know the music that these two play together Ian. but there is kind of that thing that just says it resolves and moves forward beautifully but i think for some folks who are used to perhaps a little bit different kind of book it's like wait a minute wait a minute what let's come back to that. When when are they gonna solve that? When are they gonna fix that? But you know, it's fixed. It's fixed right here, right? You know. Yeah. As Bondin and Stephen are carrying Jack. It's
1: fixed. And and maybe words were spoken between them. Who knows? It it doesn't matter. All all we need to know is that O'Brien tells us the fact that the two are reconciled. And for me it was clear exactly. as, as Stephen as Stephen took Jack below. And if you're not sure, then turn the page. And and they're friends again, albeit one of them, one of them badly wounded.
0: Right. right, that's right. Well, it, it, it is funny. And, you know, here's Jack, the action hero, saving everybody, saved once again by our complete non-action hero. Although, you know, every yeah. once in a while, we think maybe Stephen sees more action than we think. But but non-action hero, saving Jack. And, you know, thank yeah. thank Patrick O'Brien for it.
1: Right. Well, we might get to come back in a short while to what is it that Stephen can do w- with his own kind of heroics. Yeah. Yeah. To To rescue Jack some more, but we'll see. Now, all this has been a payoff for a big gamble that Jack took. He rolled the dice. He rolled the dice in inviting the crew to stay loyal to him. He rolled the dice when he rapidly advanced the plans for the attack on Cholieu. He rolled the dice when he decided, against considerable odds, to decide to cut out the fanchula as the means by which he would pull the polycrest off the sandbank. And this was the one big gamble, but it seems to be looking back at the whole book, uh, certainly up to this point, that gambling and chance and how the characters respond to it have been a big part of the storytelling in this book. So if we go right back to the emotional stories, Sophie isn't willing to risk her mother's disapproval. Um, Stephen isn't willing to risk the possibility of rejection by pressing his, his marriage suit with Diana. Jack doesn't dare to propose marriage to Sophie for fear of rejection and doesn't dare to accept the offer of a ship from Canning because of the risk to his reputation from becoming a privateer captain. So these characters are all spending time in this novel, sort of adrift in a a world of uncertainty. And this ultimate gamble was the prospective duel between Jack and Stephen. And each of them was willing to gamble their lives in a duel rather than to risk in some ways, their feelings or their reputations. And I think the fact that they're willing to take a gamble is the the moment when they're able to get themselves out of the, the bind that they're in. So Jack making these big tactical gambles has been a big payoff for him. Sophie is going to take a big gamble very shortly as well to try and make progress in cementing the uh, the engagement between her and Jack. And and by the way, Stephen's taken his frustrations out earlier on by beating Smith as the Marine Lieutenant at cards. We learn along the way that gambling is something that Stephen loves and that he's very good at. So everybody's been taking a gamble and O'Brien seems to approve of the fact that when people have been able to roll the dice and have courage and accept the uncertainty, that better things have happened and that they've all suffered by being half stepped out of their uh, of their lives.
0: It it is interesting. I, I wonder with Stephen. Stephen's a guy that can probably do odds forward and backwards in his mind, and can read people incredibly yeah. Yeah. well. So, I'm I'm not sure if gaming and gambling is a big gamble for Stephen, but certainly relationships may well be a big gamble for Stephen. So, you, we'll see <laughs> if, sure. if Patrick O'Brien and this relationship between risk and reward continues to hold. You know, continues to hold particularly for Stephen as we go forward in the series.
1: So now we can get quickly into the final phases of the book. Jack and Stephen go back ashore and Jack is made post. This step that he's longed for ever since the end of the previous book finally comes about as a result of this action in the Polycrest and bringing the Fanchula back to the UK. He's made post and appointed to be acting captain or jobbing captain on a very fancy frigate, HMS Lively and O'Brien uses this as a chance to turn us abruptly back into a world where things are calm and things are orderly, but there is plenty of new social situations and plenty of humor to be had as well.
0: There really are. Here we are. We're on the ship, as you say, the lively. And we have a little conversation here on this ship where everything is extremely well-ordered. It looks like they've got time and motion efficiency experts having shaped them on board everything. But in the midst of that, there's also this great ape, Cassandra, who uh who runs up and down <laughs> the ship and everybody loves.
1: And Stephen almost puts his foot in it by saying that he believes that the ape's gonna be dead pretty soon and he's looking forward to dissecting her. And that's Really taken in bad part by the crew and by Jack.
0: Well, and it's funny. It's it's just Stephen being so. This is the way life is. I mean, Stephen observes that yeah. you know the crew is feeding this ape grog. The grog is killing the ape, and so yeah, it's a great ape, and you're you're all going to kill her. And I look forward to dissecting her. <laughs> Jack, rightfully, in in order to win his new crew over, points out Stephen. I think they'd rather you save the ape than dissect her, right?
1: And interestingly, I think in the Episode of coming aboard the Lively, O'Brien takes the chance to paint Stephen as different again. So they've reconciled their friendship, but that doesn't mean that they've become characters that are closer together and more like each other. As Stephen, almost with a sense of relief, gets back into his persona of being the the oddball, rather eccentric naturalist surgeon coming aboard in his strange kind of woolen one-piece onesie Perfect. garment and bringing the bees oh my God. into the uh into the great cabin <laughs> yes so St- steven's back to being steven again you know with all that entails and
0: you you wonder again where does o'brien come up with this stuff these woolen one pieces this bringing on you know tens of thousands of bees into the main cabin um it's just it's hilarious And it's just you scratch your head and you think probably there's a journal reference. Probably there's a letter from somebody. It probably happened somewhere.
1: And Jack also is settled back, albeit temporarily, into his role of captain. And we get reminded of how it felt when he was first appointed commander of the Sophie because he has this sensation of the loneliness of command. And that's brought out, I think, by yet again a conversation over dinner He's interrogated pretty closely by the parson, isn't he?
0: Yeah, nobody else can talk to him. They have to only speak when spoken to by the captain. But the parson, no, who knows nothing about naval etiquette, you know, starts going on. And it's yeah. interesting because Jack has watched how well this ship runs and how finely honed it is. And I, and I think is not really doubting himself, but kind of saying, you know, I don't want to step out of line here. I, I really needed to be off of land in order not to be arrested for debt. I'm glad they gave me the, this temporary thing while the, the true captain is is in his seat in parliament. But the Parsons question brings up a big difference between Jack as captain, the Lively's full-time captain, and the crew of this ship, because the parson finds out in, in this conversation that Jack has been in some great naval battles. And wants to hear all about it. Give me the impression about it. Tell me about it. And I was fascinated by Jack's saying, you know, how, I don't know quite how to tell you about it. I mean, it's like telling you about a symphony. How do you, how do you do that? Um, And Jack tries to give some impression of what it's like to be in the midst of battle, you know, and then he kind of thinks to another battle and another battle And as he speaks to this, I think the whole, you know, they're they're eating with all the officers together here. And I think they see Jack a little bit differently in the midst of this.
1: Mm. Because they were initially a little bit reserved, I think, about Jack as captain. But now they're realizing that they've got a genuinely capable fighting captain with with all the character and conduct that, that goes with that.
0: Yeah. And something that they really have not done much of. Right
1: right they have also got someone who loves a terrible joke <laughs> and we're about we're we're about to have sprung on us one of the jokes with apologies to those of you who are saving this for reading ahead this is a spoiler this joke is going to come back at least once per book right and obrien's obviously so delighted with it and he makes jack so delighted with this joke why is a dog watch called a dog watch by the way the dog watch being the watch between 4 and 6 p.m. and 6 and 8 p.m. Dog watchers being two hours long instead of four hours long, as are all the other watches in the uh, in a naval watch system. Why are the dog watchers called dog watchers? Because they're cur tailed. And it's not one that makes you chortle right off the page. But what makes you what you chortle is the, the unfolding glee of the members of the gun room, the members of the wardroom, the dinner party, as they all start to get it, and everybody is just falling about with this really quite lame joke and and
0: who delivers that line matron and and of course everybody ignores matron because matron doesn't know anything about the Navy and naval right. life. But that you know, Matrovek says, nobody does anything. And then finally, one of the midshipmen starts to chortle and says, you know, kind of tells his neighbor about it, who then catches up. And then everybody's got all eyes on Stephen about, a, you know, a naval watch, which Stephen probably knows nothing about, but he knows a great pond. <laughs> he does.
1: Now, Stephen also gets the chance to go ashore. Stephen's intelligence life is going on apace, He gets to spend some time in London. He gets to spend some time enjoying classical music. I think he goes and enjoys a trumpet concerto. He also gets to spend some time with Sophie. And one last time, I think, tries to persuade Sophie. The ship has gone down channel to Plymouth. And that's not far from where Sophie and Cecilia are living with their mother. Stephen goes ashore and says to Sophie one last time, look, can't you set yourself free from your mother can't you let Jack know that you love him and that you'd like to be married to him? Because I think he uses this word, this phraseology that says you know, men are very, very vulnerable to a direct assault, to a direct attack. Yes, and and Sophie's so conflicted. She's really, really sure that this would be a bad, wrong, forward, contrary, wicked thing to do, and Stephen. Gives it up as a bad job. And he's writing in his diary back aboard ship saying that this is such a wasted opportunity. And he's, he starts writing in the diary in a general way. He's lamenting the unspeakable levity with which the faint chance of happiness is thrown away for some jealousy, tiff, sullenness, private vanity, mistaken sense of honor, that dead, weak, and silly notion. And then he reveals the specific thing that he has in mind when he writes. I would have sworn that Sophie had more bottom. <laughs> and, that, and as he's writing those words on the page, the moment arrives. And it's funny, I'd never really spotted that this was the turning point in my previous reads, but rereading this time, I've just landed on this moment as the chance for the character art between Jack and Sophie to really take a turn. At that moment, he looked up from the page straight into her face. Remember he's aboard ship. Right. It was outside the window, a few feet below him, in the boat pulling round the frigate stern. She, Sophie, was looking up beyond the cabin window towards the taffrail, with her mouth slightly open, her lip caught behind her upper teeth, with an expression of contained alarm in her immense, upturned eyes. Admiral Haddock sat beside her and Cecilia. Now, Although he was given a Jane Austen comedy surname, Admiral Haddock gets to do a serious job in the story. Hooray! Because he's the unsung hero. I'm not really sure from the story whether Sophie and Cecilia recruited him as cover so they could go and have this journey to go visit Jack aboard ship without breaching the convention of society. Or I don't know, maybe Admiral Haddock offered it to the girls as his idea because he's a bit of an old lush and an old romantic. Maybe Stephen recruited the admiral to help but i i doubt that i think we would have heard that in the story if he'd done
0: that well stephen certainly directed sophie to get the admiral and and kept looking up the admiral's house but how they actually did it we don't know
1: no 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 and again we're just left us we're left to suppose that which is great and we have this delightful episode of jack furnishing the cabin in what he thinks will be female compatible taste although at some point maturin says this is this is great as long as you're planning to you know use the room as an undertaker's parlor. Right, or a brothel. Yeah, or a brothel, yes. A brothel or an undertaker's parlor. And he's making the rest of the crew's life a misery. And I love this line about the married officers looked at him with malignant satisfaction and the rest with disapproval. (laughs)
0: That's right. Oh, and, you know, he tries to search the crew for somebody who would know what ladies like, somebody who knows, who has good taste. And, And he finally happens upon one of the, you know, one of the ship's crew.
1: Oh yes, this is Mallet. Now, first of all, I, I like there's something appealing about people who've got a criminal past showing up in a in a in another world. And we have this brief comic glimpse of a man called Mallet who is Carpenter's crew. He's obviously been pressed at some point, or maybe he got sent from prison because he is a former receiver of stolen goods. He's a former fence for artworks. And he's aboard ship and he's seen as an arbiter of taste. And so Aubrey summons him and says, I need you to go and procure you know, genteel furnishings and accessories for the cabin. And Mallet says, in this rather prim way, Well, I understand perfectly, sir. And in what style would you like? Chinoiserie or classical or directoire? And Jack has no idea and he just says, I want it in the best style. Now, I'm I'm going to make a connection here to another work of writing that you and I both love, Mike, which is The West Wing. Oh, yes. So in uh, episode 10, series two of The West Wing, there's a a character called Bernard Thatch. And Bernard Thatch works in the White House, in the White House visitor's office. Uh, He's in charge of gifts and artifacts that arrive in the White House, basically. And he's played by this very far back, very upper class English actor, and he has this uh, conversation with the uh, White House Press Secretary, C.J. Craig. It's all
2: in the report. It wasn't a problem.
1: Yeah, but it made it to the press room, so I just wanted to check in.
2: The guide was pointing out the Gustave Caillou hanging outside the Blue Room. A woman began screaming completely incoherently. In English? If it was a language at all, its origin was unknown to me. I sent for the agent on duty who attempted to take a statement, but not speaking whatever language this woman was, simply escorted her out of the building.
1: Well, OK. Thanks for stopping by.
2: C.J., your necklace is a monument to bourgeois taste. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Bernard, listen, who is Gustave Caillou, and how long has this painting been hanging outside the Blue Room?
2: Caillou was a contemporary of Corbet, who was considerably more gifted. This is a painting of the cliffs at Etretat, cleverly titled The Cliffs at Etretat. It is a minor work. What's it doing here? It was on loan from the Musée d'Orsay to the National Gallery. The President, on a visit to the National Gallery, and possessing even less taste in fine art than you have in accessories, announced that he liked the painting. The French government offered it as a gift to the White House, I suppose as retribution for Euro Disney. So here it hangs, like a gym sock on a shower rod. You're a snob. Yes.
1: So you see, it only took six episodes for us to make a West Wing connection. I'm I'm sure there's going to be another West Wing connection coming soon.
0: Oh, we'd have to make those because we love the West Wing and we love Patrick. Oh, e. we so do.
1: Now, Stephen is obviously in the time of his life where he's enjoying classical music because earlier on he went ashore and enjoyed a trumpet concerto. And now he goes ashore to enjoy the opera. In fact, he's ashore to alert the intelligence authorities about what's happening in Spain. And while he's left waiting late one night, Sir Joseph Blaine, the head of the intelligence service, gives them, gives him a ticket for an opera by Cimarosa. And attending the opera, Stephen has probably a very different experience from the one Blaine was anticipating for him.
0: Stephen's at the opera. He's got a great seat in one of the boxes and he he notices that something is off. Something is just not working for him. Even though the opera is phenomenal, it's everything that he's been told. And then he sees her, he sees Diana and he's watching her. And she's kind of like a kept woman who's being showed off. And she's with Canning. Canning is showing her off. Everybody's stopping by to see this pretty pet. And Stephen realizes that it's her scent, the scent that he gave her that's been lingering yeah. behind in his mind, and that scent that we've been following all through this novel there um you know, and in that scent, as he looks at her i I loved as he sees Diana so differently that he's seen her before, and his mind can't reconcile this. He says to himself, "Did the Diana I saw at New Place?" ever exist, in fact? A creation of my own? Can you create a unicorn by longing? And then he wonders to himself if he had a part in the death of the woman that he had known as Diana.
1: Just such a poignant moment here. That's right. And his love for Diana Villiers is going to continue to torture him, and it tortures him in the most unlikely places and it seems like he can't escape it it's really really sad and leaves you feeling that you know what might have been redemption is still it leaves a lot unresolved for Stephen.
0: you know for such a fabulous thinker for such a brilliant man uh for such an observer of human character um he really has a tough time you know know, he's he's got a bit of an issue with laudanum He's got a bit of an issue with Diana, yep. I think.
1: And the closest he can come to resolving any of that is to find a new way to help out his friend. So his intelligence work in Spain, which actually was, was almost the end of his friendship with Jack earlier on in the book, yes, now means that he's got early intelligence of the forthcoming entry of Spain into the war. And he sees an opportunity to make the the clandestine side of his life pay off to the benefit of uh, of Jack and hopefully for the benefit of their friendship.
0: Yeah, Stephen, who's never taken a cent from the Admiralty for his intelligence work, and and they value him above everybody else, ask for a favor, not for himself, but for Jack. That, you know, could could Jack and his current ship, the Lively, play a role in trying to deal with this coming of Spain into the war here?
1: I was rereading this, And noticing that this is actually the moment where Stephen's clandestine character as an intelligence agent begins to become really unambiguous for Jack. Yes. And we've always known, I think we've always known as the reader from fairly early on that Stephen had this profile with the world of intelligence. But that was not really clear to Jack. And it was certainly the the cause of the confrontation that led to the duel. And Jack points out to Stephen that the Admiralty have found their own backhanded way of rewarding him because Stephen is made uh, Prohac Vice a captain covering the role of him giving advice to the British squadron that's been sent out to intercept these Spanish ships. And at some point, Jack says, oh, I, w- I wonder why they've made you a captain. And then all of a sudden, the penny drops and he goes, uh, is it possible that this could be a profitable expedition? And Stephen says, well... Yes, it could be, because the action that's about to take place, in fact, was a real-life action. Again, Patrick O'Brien found an action between ships that fitted his story really superbly. Uh, On October 5th, 1804, a Spanish fleet bringing gold back from the River Plate was intercepted by a squadron of frigates. And in the fictional world, that squadron of frigates was sent there on the intelligence provided by Stephen Maturin. And in the fictional world, HMS Lively was captained not by Hammond, but by Jack Aubrey. So he's successfully, again, placed our fictional characters in, in a in a real situation. And what is it that finally wins the day? Well, we have the action between the two groups of frigates. We have the Spanish frigate Mercedes blown up in action in this really horrifying, all-encompassing explosion The ship with the treasure aboard turns tail and heads for the coast. And which ship is it that's fastest? It's the Lively. What's the problem with the Lively? Well, in the action, all of the stuntsil booms and spars were knocked away. And Stephen's a bit puzzled about why it is that Jack seems so kind of at ease about the fact that we're just chasing, we're a mile or two behind the Spanish ship and we'll just get there. Well, Jack knows that seamanship is going to win the day. Because pretty soon the stunsal booms have been repaired, the spars are complete, and we have this imagery of the lively unfurling her wings like a bird, and she finally sets full sail, all the sails that she can carry. And that's it. The Spanish ship is captured with one Spanish captain already aboard from an earlier prize. It's the second Spanish captain comes aboard for guess what kind of social occasion? A dinner. It's a dinner, and and Jack,
0: you know, back earlier when Stephen was wondering you know, how in the world, you know, why Jack seemed so nonchalant as the prize was getting away from them. Jack had asked Killick to set the table for four, for him, for Stephen, right. and what he knew would be two Spanish captains before dinner time.
1: A bit of hubris there that I think Jack's earned. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. So here we are, end of post captain at a dinner, as you say, Presumably, Jack and Stephen, both rich from their prize, their trouble's over. And I wonder to our readers, does this somehow sound familiar? It
1: sounds like we've been here before. And I'm going to say to yeah. readers who want to avoid spoilers, don't read all of the Wikipedia summary of the action of October 5th, 1804, because that will get you into the world of what's happening as we turn the first page of HMS Surprise.
0: Oh, well put.
1: Well, So, so let, let's take a look back at... Reflections on Post Captain overall, Mike. What 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 do you think?
0: Well, it, it's it's a really large book. It's a very rich book, and it. Uh, I think I mentioned this before that for me, it took all the promise of Master Commander and then exploded it, uh, in in terms of making it bigger and grander and more of it and deeper and wider. I I just loved it. How about you, Ian?
1: Me too. It's still. Probably my favorite of the canon it's the it's probably the most difficult read, partly because of its length and also because of the very dark places that he takes the characters to. but there's so much reward in all of the payoffs that the characters get, and especially as a rereader, you see that he's laying the foundations for lots of the character arcs that are still to come and lots of the kind of really appealing lovable nuances between Jack and Stephen and between the other people in their lives so I still, still holds a special place for me, I think. However, I think we're done with coastal sailing around Britain. I think we're probably done with the Mediterranean. I think it's going to be time soon for Jack and Stephen to visit some shores further afield. I'm sure it's time for Jack to go ashore and uh, take care of business with cementing his engagement to Sophie, which probably means we need to turn to another book.
0: We do need to turn to another book. And at some point, we're going to have to maybe get a little help in terms of, you know, where are these guys? Where are they going? How did they get there? And what happened along the way?
1: Watch out for special guests coming soon. We've got a special guest coming to talk to us about mapping and tracking the voyages of Aubrey and Maturin. And we've got a special guest coming in to talk to us about how this work of literature sits in the canon of 20th century literature generally, and taking a fresh look at the Patrick O'Brien books from the perspective of somebody who's new to the canon. So Mike, time to close the page on post-captain and time to reach out and pick up HMS Surprise. So what do you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien?
0: With all my heart.
1: DJ, your necklace is a monument to bourgeois taste.